Welcome to Speak Up, the official podcast of Speech Pathology Australia. We bring you insightful conversations with leading professionals about key issues and innovations in speech pathology, all in a concise format that's perfect for your busy schedule. We aim to inform, inspire, and also engage. We love hearing from you, so please join the conversation on our social media platforms or email us with your thoughts and questions. And please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Your support helps us grow and inform, inspire and engage others. Now, let's embark on today's conversation. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up. This is Nadia. Today I'm recording from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung and Boonwurrung Boon Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne. Today, I am really excited for the conversation that we're going to be having. So I feel like very frequently when we're working with people, we often get a sense for if their diagnosis is an appropriate fit or if we feel like there might be something else that's going on. And our guest today has caused me to stop and reflect on some of the people I've previously worked with and think, gosh, was there some extra information that I just didn't know about? Um, So we're going to be having a conversation about uh, the 22Q gene with Laura Roach. Hi, Laura. Thanks for being here. Hi, Nadia. Thank you so much for bringing me on. Could you start us off just by telling us a little bit about yourself and your research and your practice? Thanks. Sure. Um, So my name is uh, Dr. Laura Roach. I have a PhD in educational psychology, so I'm not a speech-language therapist. (laughs) Just a side note there. I am a senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales, and I sort of started this journey with young people with 22Q, I guess about um, five years ago. My background is more in um, enhancing communication for young people who just have expressive communication issues. Largely my work has been in young children with autism. Um, I've worked with some girls with Rett syndrome and Angelman syndrome before, and also individuals with profound and multiple disabilities. So my focus is really on those individuals who have more sort of complex presentations and difficulty in in being understood and expressing themselves. Yeah, brilliant. And I think that's something that there's so much information out there with that particular population as well of, um, of individuals that we're learning new things so frequently about that. And I was so excited when you were talking about the 22Q gene deletion because it felt like some additional piece of information that we can kind of slot in and and use to support these individuals and these families. Um, Can you start out out by telling us a bit more about the background, about what the 22Q gene deletion looks like and and does? Sure. So um, firstly, I would like to say that kids with 22Q, it's actually formally called 22Q 11.2 deletion syndrome, but I'll just shorten that to 22Q because it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, So these kids and these individuals and young people are really beautiful and amazing. I'm actively working with quite a few children and their families, and they're just simply delightful to be working alongside and within their family unit. These kids are very assertive, very strong-willed, and just super wonderful. So 22Q is considered a rare genetic syndrome. It's got an incidence of approximately 1 in 4,000 live births. Mm. However, they think that this is... um, you know, we're missing a lot of diagnoses. So um, due to early signs being recognized and earlier genetic screening, it's looking more like one in 2,000 to one in 3,000 live births. So common features of the syndrome are um, heart defects, low tone, 
feeding difficulties in hypoglycemia seen in infants. So this would raise red flags. Mm -hmm. uh, also, many children have little sort of bent over ears at the top, some facial dysmorphia and the presence of a cleft palate, all of which can be seen, um, you know, in really young babies. So depending on where the baby is born, actually, um, the syndrome will either be picked up earlier or later. For example, um, at the Queensland Children's Hospital, they have an amazing 22Q clinic. So the specialists there are, are sort of, you know, on the lookout for something. You know, if they're noticing some of these red flags, they will pick that up really quickly. Um, but unfortunately, if these signs are not identified early, then um, genetic screening might not be completed until much later. Some of the children I work with, you know, have such a wide range of age diagnosis. Uh, one little boy was diagnosed at six weeks old and one little girl was diagnosed when she was six years old. Yeah. So it really depends on whether, you know, those signs are being being picked up. So it's great to, to raise more awareness and understanding of the syndrome as well. So, yeah. um, so children with 22Q then go on to experience things like developmental delays. They can have skeletal issues such as scoliosis. Um, sometimes, you know, major feeding issues, so lots of gastrointestinal issues. They can also show degrees of intellectual sort of disability, more from the mild to the moderate sort of levels. And importantly for my work, they um, demonstrate lots of speech and language issues and disorders. So on top of all of this, it's already, you know, quite complex. Uh, young people with 22Q have a risk of about 25 to 30% sort of increased risk of autism and ADHD. So we often see those sorts of diagnoses coming through as well. And a 25% increased risk of developing psychosis in early adulthood. That's yeah, in comparison right. to the general population. Yeah, so pretty massive there. So, you know, psychopathology is also really relatively prevalent, uh, prevalent in this syndrome as well. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, so as you mentioned, you're not a speech pathologist, but I imagine you work quite closely with, with a number of speeches. What is the role that a speech pathologist can play when working with an individual with the 22Q gene deletion? Yes. Yeah, so um, as I said, children with 22Q often dem demonstrate speech and language issues. And in fact, approximately 90% of children will be diagnosed with a speech and or language disorder, mm. making it the most prevalent characteristic of 22Q. So typically we see speeches often working on speech intelligibility for children with 22Q. And this is largely due to um, two key factors. So number one, cleft palates are really common in these children. So, you know, speech therapists are involved in supporting that speech sound intelligibility. And this is before and after maybe a cleft repair. That might be the course of treatment there. And mm -hmm. um, also children with 22Q can present with pharyngeal insufficiency. So I'm sure your um, listeners are familiar with, with that, but it really um, means that children can struggle to build up enough pressure in their oral cavity. And so they end up with really hypernasal speech. Mm. So this also impacts upon speech intelligibility. So speeches are really important in sort of the pre and post repairs and all of that kind of work around supporting that um, intelligibility with these kids. So in fact, all of the children I work with and the majority of children involved in published research internationally are engaging with speech pathologists. So they're a really key allied health practitioner in supporting these, these individuals. 
But however, this communication profile becomes more complicated than simply speech intelligibility issues. And there's been some really great research coming out of the Netherlands looking at speech and language issues in these children. So what we see is that regardless of any kind of intelligibility issues, so that is if kids have really poor speech intelligibility or if they've got really clear and intelligible speech, they will also have some degree, some quite significant degrees of language issues. And so, as we're probably all aware, there are theories that, you know, if you have poor intelligible speech as a child, your communication environment is impacted. It's often not quite as rich because the interactions you are having with listeners or communication partners can be impacted, which makes total sense, right? Um, but what about when your speech is perfectly intelligible? So when these kids are speaking clearly, it doesn't quite add up. So these researchers in the Netherlands are really actually finding commonalities between speech and language issues in 22Q and in those who have developmental language disorders. So as your listeners are also probably aware, you only receive um, you know, a developmental language disorder diagnosis if there are no other underlying causes for the mm -hmm. issues which obviously sets this group apart from 22Q kids, but still there's a bit of an interesting link there, I mm. think. That's, yeah, sort of a profile that's getting more and more attention. Um, but more research is needed to explore these language delays. But in 22Q, they present, you know, um, quite familiarly like this, delays in pre-linguistic communication, like babbling and this early speech sound production. So often the kids I work with are described as, you know, really quiet or even silent babies, not really engaging in that, that sort of babbling. Mm -hmm. uh, we also see major delays in first word production and then delayed and less complex sentence production. So those early conversations are really kind of really quite basic and a bit delayed there. And we see less complex narrative skills in childhood. So the issues with children's narration becomes really salient when these kids get to preschool and primary school, where they're really struggling to engage with that more complex level of play where narration is needed between peers. So studies are demonstrating that in comparison to same age peers, 22Q kids are producing much less complex narratives than their peers. And this is even when intellectual ability is controlled for. So again, a really sort of interesting profile. Yeah. And, you know, as we can imagine, this um, this has a major impact upon their ability to engage with peers from a young age, develop those friendships, engage in play, and then further on developing friendships and maintaining these during primary school. So again, for these kids, you know, we know that there is, um, you know, this presence of autism and ADHD and later more serious mental health issues. So it's really important that we support these little kids being able to communicate with their peers. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the role of speech therapists, what typically happens, um, and I'm not saying 100% of the time, but what I hear from the families I work with and the speeches that I sort of talk to, um, mostly speech intelligibility is the primary focus for these kids. But the angle that I'm coming from, um, based on their communication profile, is that perhaps a more, you know, a total communication approach where both speech and language skills are targeted from an earlier age. 
So what my current work focuses on is developing an evidence base for the use of AAC in this group, um, augmentative and alternative communication. Because currently, I mean, as of today, <laughs> I'm doing a systematic review on this. I've only found two articles in the literature, only two, wow. that actually report on the use of AAC for kids with 22Q. That's wild. It is wild. And I know that this does not accurately reflect clinical practice. Yeah. And, you know, I know that species are using AAC for these kids. However, it's not it's not present. It's not there in the research. So yeah. I'm sort of aiming to change that. Yeah, absolutely. And look, that's one of the things that really stuck with me after um, the conversation that we had at IOP over in Aotearoa, New Zealand, was that there is that recommendation of to not do AAC with these individuals when we know that there's there's buckets of research that says if you've got somebody that's got um, difficulty with speech clarity and also language, that working on that language is going to benefit that speech clarity. And doing that through AAC is a evidence-based and um, well-documented way of, of improving that. Can you talk a little bit more about why that has been happening, do you think? And and it sounds like you probably don't agree with it, which is great, because nor do I. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, so um, my journey with 22Q started when I was working with um, specialist paediatrician and Professor Honey Husler at the Queensland Children's Hospital in Brisbane. So as I mentioned before, they run an exceptional 22Q clinic up there. And she introduced me to some of her really young um, patients with 22Q, some really beautiful, lovely little children. And the first thing that really struck me was their speech and language issues. So first of all, you notice the intelligibility issues with their speech. But um, after engaging with these children a little bit more, you notice delayed conversational skills and issues with basic sort of sentence structure. And I recall asking Honey, you know, so are these kids using AAC? That was my immediate first question. Like I didn't see them bringing any systems with them. So I just thought, you know, are they using it? And she told me she just wasn't really aware of that. So naturally, I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I'll find, I'll find some research on this for sure. So I became very curious and set out to find studies that taught these kids to use AAC in the literature, because I wanted to know which systems were preferred or most beneficial for this group based on their communicative profile. And I also wanted to know, you know, the methods by which these systems were being implemented with these kids, um, what sort of designs and things were being used. And I found absolutely nothing. So this really shocked me. Um, as you know, they clearly have expressive communication issues and are therefore candidates for AAC. So I dug deeper and it was then that I discovered in a textbook written by a very prominent 22Q researcher that stated, do not teach AAC as this will take away precious time from therapy that focuses on speech production. Gosh, that's and disappointing. Yes, all of your listeners who do AAC <laughs> will just be like, what? So um, I worked a little bit in Austria before I came to Australia. And um, there is an Austrian saying that goes something like this. You should only do research that burns under your fingernails. <laughs> so I am a really big AAC supporter. A lot of my research that... um. You might be able to tell I'm from New Zealand. A lot of my research and my study was all done in New Zealand and we were really AAC focused. So I'm a big advocate for at least offering, you know, at least providing an opportunity for anyone who has difficulty in being understood 
you know, having their message misinterpreted or who has any difficulty in their communicative message being ignored or, you know, seen as having no communicative intent. I'm a really big advocate for being able to effectively communicate using any means that is necessary. It's really important. And as we know, it is considered a human right. Mm -hmm. So for me, AAC means a combination of speech and a system. So that might mean formal sign language or keyword sign or using pictures or, you know, like an SGD high tech option or naturally a combination of these. So, you know, we are all naturally multimodal communicators. So I just believe in providing the opportunity. So when I teach AAC, speech is always used by me and sometimes, you know, also by the child once we get into it. And what we know about AAC based on that extensive literature is that by offering people an opportunity to be understood and be able to communicate their wants, needs, ideas, comment, to socially engage with their world, we are not only using an evidence-based method with a ton of successful research behind it, we might actually support their motivation for further communication and we might actually enhance their verbal speech, which in studies that I've done, I have seen, you know, um, children considered non-verbal um, autistic children, I have seen their speech increase. So I've seen it with my own eyes and I've seen how effective and how wonderful AAC can be for opening up these children's social world. And I think so, that's pretty know. reliable for what most people would see. I mean, clinically, I think we've all worked with individuals where that has been the case. So it's mm -hmm. it's great that there's a push towards doing something that's a little bit more supportive for these kids. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, as you can tell, when I read those words, do not teach AAC because it might hinder speech production. Mm -hmm. I was just like, right, well, I guess that's my program of research for the foreseeable future. Then. <laughs> um, I have to say, though, since reading those words in that textbook, more current research has indicated, um, you know, they allow a small section to say that AAC might be beneficial for learners. They mostly focus on um, sign language. So they say, you know, maybe we could teach 22Q kids to use sign to reduce frustration, but I think we can probably do better than that. Hmm. Yeah, fabulous. I think um, I think we'll have a lot of AAC speeches that are listening to this today that are that are riled up and ready to come join you in that corner of that fight. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for that. That's a really great overview. So I think one of the things that I wish I had known before um, last year when I heard you speak about this is just some things to consider when you when you are working with somebody who either has a 22Q diagnosis or that you suspect that that might be something that's going on. So what are some things that people need to be thinking about if they are presented with someone like that? Well, I think for the first, the first point I'll make is that because 22Q is so complex, um, your little person or your young adult will probably be seeing a large range of specialists. So they are busy. There is a lot going on. So these kids have really complex conditions and their health issues will often take priority. Um, families are busy. The families I work with are doing everything and anything they can to best support their child. So they need support from us where we can offer it. I would also just like to say that if you... You know, if you're presented with a child and they have the intelligibility issues and families are concerned about their speech, don't be afraid 
to um, offer AAC to these kids. So even, you know, when we have kids who come in and they've got some speech, it's pretty unintelligible and we're sort of tossing up the best approach and whether, you know, whether to use AAC or not, I would say just offering them a structured AAC option to support the social communication could have a massive benefit. Because what we know about these little kids is they, you know, they go into their, their preschool or their daycare or their primary school, and often they're just not really conversing with peers. And they're really struggling to know the right things to say. They're struggling to, you know, start up those conversations. And this is a real barrier for these kids. So I think just trying, trying some things out mm. um, and clearly explaining to the parents, you know, sort of why we might be trying this. Because I think something that comes through in my work is that a lot of the time parents are saying, but they have speech. So mm. why would we need to provide an alternative to speech? But as long as we can provide them with that kind of clarity around this is just going to support them being understood and you know, all of that beautiful, beautiful stuff that AAC can offer. Um, I think that's really important. And another thing you need to know is these kids are super assertive, very strong willed. So you might need to work hard to develop that sort of strong, trusting relationship. They want to have fun. And if you're not fun enough, you'll <laughs> I can say that from experience. I sometimes some of my kids have got to up my game when I'm working with them. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Um, so I think we've probably piqued a lot of people's interest in this presentation and this um, client group. Are there any resources that you can point us towards today? Well, unfortunately, I can't lead you to any um, evidence-based practice in AAC for these kids. I'm working on it. I've got, yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> I've got a paper coming out soon. <laughs> um, but what I can provide people with is some great links to amazing 22Q groups that are in Australia. So first is the 22Q Foundation of Australia and New Zealand. This group are exceptional. They're a family-run, lived experience group. You know, some of the, the prominent leaders in this group all have the lived experience of having children with 22Q. And they've got an incredible, incredibly informative webpage with so much great info for families who have just got a diagnosis, um, practitioners to learn more about 22Q and find out what's going on in the, in the field. They're really up to date with the current guidelines for supporting children and adults and all the latest research coming out. So every year they put together these amazing conference days, which are really family focused. So these days are so informative they bring together all of the experts in the Australian sphere of 22Q and are a really great and supportive space for parents and family to come and interact. Um, last year, we had one conference day in Sydney and a second in Perth that I was able to attend and speak at, which was so great because Perth um, Children's Hospital have recently opened up a new 22Q clinic. So we've got one in Brisbane now and one in Perth. So it's just so great. Yeah. Um, the second great resource is that there is a new 22Q group that is mostly online, I do believe, that has officially formed this year. So my colleague and 22Q expert, Associate Professor Linda Campbell, um, she's working at the University of Newcastle, and she has been working in the field of 22Q for over 20 years. Yeah, so she's a real, <laughs> really knowledgeable. Um, she's a clinical psych and provides psychology support for those with 22Q. Her new venture is called 22Q Minded, 
which can be found on Instagram and LinkedIn, and I can provide links to that. Um, Linda is really amazing, and she and I actually have a new paper published just last month out, so congratulations as well. <laughs> Um, and also my research team have a live survey for speech language pathologists, which asks all about their practice with individuals of 22Q. So I can offer the link to that as well. We would love to hear from any speech language um, therapists, pathologists who are currently or who have previously worked with people with 22Q to respond. Um, I'm just kind of trying to gather the whole sort of a bit more of a representation of what is happening for these kids in terms of therapy. So really um, valuable voices to listen to there. Um, and lastly, um, please contact me. I would love to hear about how you're supporting clients between 2Q. Um, you know, very, very happy to problem solve and troubleshoot AAC options and methods. And I think... Um, you know, the more we share information and knowledge and experience, um, the better we can support these young people. So, um, yeah, my current work is focused on AAC intervention for these young people. So I'm breathing this work every day. So very interested in having the conversations. Brilliant. We'll make sure that we put all of those links in the show notes so that if anyone um, would like to contact you or look into that a little bit more, that they're all right there. Um, all right, great. Thanks so much, Laura. Before we let you go today, are there any key take-home messages for people that you'd like them to be able to be going away and reflecting on? I think just that, you know, we have this amazing rich literature base of effective methods by which we can individualize our AAC approach to match any learner really these days, you know. And we know that AAC is for anyone who struggles to send clear, effective messages, who struggles to be understood, who is struggling to engage in their environment. And I just see, you know, individuals 22Q to just be perfect candidates for AAC. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just believe that kids with 22Q should be at least, you know, provided with the opportunity to try AAC mm -hmm. while their communication journey develops. Because we know social communication is so very important for all aspects of learning and healthy psychosocial development from every angle. So I'm just really hoping that, you know, more kids are provided with this wonderful, wonderful system that will only benefit them. Absolutely. An excellent message to leave that on. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who's listening and make sure you tune in next time for our next conversation. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this week's conversation. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with your colleagues and friends. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.